The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit restorationsouthside.org. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the kids zone sign. If it's your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so we can get them checked in. Why couldn't my preaching voice sound like that? Yeah. Anyway. I'm a little flustered, it's because my twins just escaped from the nursery twice this morning (laughs) with locked doors. So that's how I'm doing. How are you guys doing? If you're new here, I'm so delighted that you're here. My name is Jared Huffman. I'm on staff here at Restoration Southside. So honored uh, by Dr. Anani and Patricia's report. Uh, Not only do we get to partner with them, pray for them, and give to them, Um, but Patricia and her husband, Rob, are members here, and so we have a special relationship with them. If you haven't had the opportunity to meet with them, uh, please reach out to them um, and learn more about their ministry. We have been in the book of Mark, and we'll continue on. This is another place this morning where they're trying to trick and trap Jesus. They... Pharisees have come at him, and now the Sadducees are going to come at him and try and get him to say the wrong thing so they can trap him and kill him. And just so you know, as sort of a background to this text, as we've talked about in the, in the last couple of weeks, um, they're like three days away from killing him. So if you can just imagine all of this is ramped up, they're like three days away from killing him. And so... It could seem like it's just uh, sometimes they're giving him a hard time. Challenge after challenge after challenge they're bringing right to Jesus because they want him to slip up so that they can kill him. Now, as we're going to talk about this morning, they don't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees are sad, you see. That's how you remember. That's how you remember all the way from Sunday school. They're sad, you see, because they don't think there's life after death. They don't think there's life after death. So they're engaging someone 
who, when they don't believe in life after death, three days before he bursts the tomb. That's the context of what's going on here. It's not primarily about whether or not there'll be marriage in heaven. Will there be marriage in heaven? Will there be sex in heaven? Will there be baseball in heaven? Stay tuned. <laughs> Let's pray and ask God to bless the study of his word this morning. Lord, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? I thank you and I praise you for your word and your Holy Spirit. And I ask that you would be powerfully at work through your spirit this morning. Where people came here limping from sin in their life, every single one of us, me too, limping from suffering in our life, discouragement and doubt. And I ask God by your kindness, by our Holy Spirit, that you administer grace to your people. They're weary. And instead of finding something else to do on a Sunday morning, they've stumbled their, their, themselves into this place. Would you feed your people? I know you love to care for them. I know you love to have them know your love. And if it's just me working this morning, it's just a speech. But if you'll work, you'll lift their chins, you'll look in their eyes, you'll speak grace onto them. You'll give them enough strength to press on. So would you meet with your people this morning? And don't let me get in the way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. My wife has been gone on a girl's trip this week, which means that she's left me with those five children of hers in my house. She was gone for 10 hours, and Cohen fell out of a 12-foot treehouse. Call back that evening. Hey, how's it going? Nothing. Nothing's happening here. 12-foot treehouse. My twins in our backyard had found a treehouse that's from thousands of years ago. I mean, there's nothing good left in the wood. And they found it, and they climbed to the top of it, and they were jumping in celebration for making it on top of a prehistoric treehouse. And the floor went out from him, and Cohen fell 12 feet to the ground. He comes to me crying. His face is bleeding. He's got scratches all up and down his arms. And all I could think is, we've got to get you better before Aaron gets back. <laughs> you see, they thought this thing could hold their weight. And it obviously couldn't. And we're like that. We have these things in our lives that we think will hold our weight, hold our problems, hold our burdens. If I only have this, if I can just make it to this, this will hold my weight. And you know as well as I do, those things break under you. Whatever it is, your idol, it cracks under you. It can't hold your weight. And it sends you to the earth. The Sadducees have made this idea that there is no re resurrection, they're idle. They've put all of their thought into it. They think there's only five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible. The rest of the Old Testament isn't real. Any part that talks about angels or supernatural parts, that's not real. But their first five books, that's what's real. 
and they're putting all their weight on it. And we're like them more often than we'd like to think we are. We have passages in the Bible or philosophies about life that we go all in and we put all our weight on that aren't going to hold us. This morning, this passage is not primarily about marriage in heaven. Now, there's some principles that we'll talk through in a few minutes, but it's not primarily about marriage in heaven. It's about the resurrection. Listen to this. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we've found to be false witnesses about God, for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he did not raise him, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ, who has not been raised either, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also you who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only this life we have hope in Christ, we are the, above all people most to be pitied. Paul took the resurrection and put it down in the middle of the Bible and said, you cannot have a Christian faith. You can't have faith if the resurrection is false. It's of that importance. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you, your faith is futile. And these guys who don't believe in the resurrection are telling Jesus that the resurrection isn't true. So that's what I'm trying to point to you is that they're using this example of leveret marriage to poke holes in the idea of the resurrection. They're not actually genuinely asking about what it's going to be like in heaven. Is it going to be amazing there? No, they don't believe there's an afterlife. So the whole idea to make this passage primarily about marriage doesn't fit because that's not what they're getting at. They want Jesus to explain this scenario in which this math that there's seven dudes and one woman and what's going to happen in heaven, all of it is to make Jesus look ridiculous. That's what the passage is about. Is there a resurrection or not? And Jesus takes it to them on their own ground. But yes, we have principles here about what heaven will be like, but it's primarily about the resurrection. One of my professors wrote this about Carl Sagan and his search for extraterrestrial life. As an atheist, he said, I would love to believe that when I die, I will live again. But that sort of thinking and remembering part will continue on. But I know that this is just nothing to suggest more than wishful thinking. Nothing to suggest more than wishful thinking. People have made it ridiculous to believe in heaven. Ridiculous. If somebody was sitting with you at work and asked you, you know, do you, do you really believe that those people who die, that some of them are going to a place with streets of gold and there's going to be a choir there and harps? and that you're going to sing for the rest of eternity? It's hard for us even to contemplate what forever means, what the resurrection means. And Jesus gives us a glimpse in this text about why it's so important to hang on to the resurrection, even now, for you, with your struggles and your sin, why it matters for you to hang on to, re to the resurrection. First of all, we see that these questions we ask of Jesus reveal the person who they really are, 
who they really are. Look in 18 through 24. The Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offering excuse me, raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, and leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. They think they've got him. They think they've used this particular case about leveret marriage Whereas a protection for women and a protection for the family line way back then, if a brother died and had no children, his brother would marry the widow and produce a line of children named after the man so his name would not be wiped out in Israel. And they're taking it and extrapolating it to say, what if she goes on and gets married seven more or seven times total? Then they show up in heaven and they're like, who gets to hang out with her? Who's, his, who's, who's the guy then? And so it's important for you to see it's not a genuine faith question. They're, they're trying to make the afterlife appear ridiculous, as Tim Keller says. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Somebody wrote this, the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, souls die with bodies. Souls die with bodies. Well, the whole thing they're referencing, this leveret marriage, you know, it's, we've talked about it. We talked about it when we studied Ruth. Remember, Ruth's distant relative can marry her to continue on the line of Ruth's widow. So they're trying to take a simple point and expose Jesus that Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. They're trying to say something like this. Can God make a stone that's too big for God to carry? They're playing word games with Jesus. They're showing right at the outset, that they believe they are right and that he's wrong. They believe they are right and that he's wrong. And the reason that I want to linger here for a second about the Sadducees is because we're like that too. Whatever you believe about anything, money, sex, race, how you spend your time, what's acceptable way of relaxing, how you believe about anything, you believe that you are right and presume that others or that the Bible is wrong. Oh, the Bible doesn't mean that. Oh, the Bible doesn't mean that. It can't mean that. Our culture comes at us saying, we presume we're right and that your God is too small and minimalistic and legalistic. We're right. He's wrong. God sends people to hell. That's not a nice God. One way to heaven is it fair. Sexuality is personal. It's for us to decide. All of these different ways in which our culture tells us that we're right and he's wrong or the book is wrong. You see, the Sadducees aren't the only person who do this. Are you the kind of person who walks into any argument assuming that you're right? Assuming that you know better? Assuming that if people would just listen to you and do what you've asked them to do, that things would go much better for them and for you? truth of the matter is we're a lot more like the Sadducees than we'd like to admit. All of us have questions that they get at us. Tim Keller laid out these. He said, there can't just be one true religion. These are the questions that he sees that the culture 
that our world, our hearts have a hard time with Christianity. There can't just be one true religion. How could a God, a good God allow suffering? Christianity is a straitjacket. The church is responsible for so much injustice. How could a loving God send people to hell? Science has disproved Christianity. You can't take the Bible literally. Over and over again, our culture and some parts of our hearts say, we're right, and Jesus, you're wrong. You have no reason, no ability to have the opinions that you have. You're just outdated and wrong. What he's saying here is that we have the freedom to doubt our doubts. When we are confronted, confronted with the realities of the world that we experience now, and with what the Bible says, and it seems hard that you're allowed to doubt your doubts. You're allowed to doubt your faith, and you're allowed to doubt your doubts. He knows that it's hard for you to be in a world like this. That's why he's giving you laments and psalms. That's why he's allowed, he says, be merciful to those who doubt in Jude. He wants you to know that you can wrestle with him in this and that it's not easy. But the difference is, is that they presume they're right and Jesus is wrong. What if we presume that he's right and that we're wrong? We use small portions of Scripture to defend our views, but then we ignore the breadth of Scripture that would change our entire lives. What are parts of the Bible people believe are unbelievable? Not everyone goes to heaven. That there's a right and a wrong use of sex, and everyone in this room is guilty of breaking it. There are those that are pietists who just want people to love Jesus and don't bother me with all that doctrine. And there are people that love doctrine and say, don't bother me with all that people loving Jesus stuff. And there's people who love social justice, which is a good thing, but then ignore the doctrine and the piety of caring about people's souls. We all do this. We pick up our favorite passage and we say, this is what the Bible's really about. When really the Bible is supposed to be transforming us. The Bible picks us up to transform us, not us use our pet passages in the Bible. That's what I love. Jesus tells them that you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Telling Bible scholars they don't know their Bible. Them's fighting words. They only focus on the first five books and everything else is unimportant. And we do that too. We focus on our pet passages, the things that we like, and we ignore the things that we don't like or we say that we don't understand it. Thomas Jefferson famously, this is from the Smithsonian Magazine, produced an 84-page Bible. He had taken all the parts to talk about Jesus and his teaching and he cut out everything else and then he glued those parts together and called it the life and morals of Jesus. But he didn't like all that miraculous stuff so he took that out of there. And we'd look at that and say, you cannot do that to a Bible. It's one story, but it's in essence exactly what we do. If you're good at loving other people, but not so good at holiness, you want to cut those holiness passages out. If you're good at holiness and reading your Bible and the spiritual practices, but are terrible to be around, you want to cut out those parts about love. All of us are constantly remaking the Bible into our image instead of being in awe of the fact that it's made in his, and that's what the Sadducees are doing. They're making the Bible into an image that they understand, a non-miracle Bible that has no resurrection. 
and Jesus fights them on their own ground. Now, the reason this is really cool, I don't want you to miss this. So again, they're using a ridiculous example about marriage and widows to point out the fact that there can't be a resurrection. Jesus fights them back on their own ground, but Jesus could go to passages in the Bible which are profoundly obvious about the resurrection to defeat them. But what he does is Jesus very wisely goes to the first five books of the Bible. Meaning, if he goes to these other texts, they'll say that doesn't matter because that's not real Bible. And he so wisely, instead of using those other texts that he knows, goes straight to the Torah to prove them wrong. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures or the power of God? For when they raise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. He looks at them and says, you know those books that you love? You don't even get them. He's one word. He says, I was, I was not... I, was the God of Abraham, was the God of Isaac, was the God of Jacob. No, that would mean that the relationship between God and those people is severed because death has gotten in the way. And instead, God says, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac, I am the God of Jacob, because those dead men are alive to me. That he's always been the God of life and not the God of death. And that's what he's pointing on them. He takes a passage that they should know better and says, look, my covenantal love is stronger and more faithful than your little death. I'm not the God of dead people. I'm the God of people who are alive. I'm the God of the resurrection. That's what he's saying. He's saying they don't get it. When you go toe-to-toe, they don't get it. They refuse to believe in the resurrection. So what does this mean? We know that he's not primarily answering a question about marriage in heaven because they're not primarily asking a question about marriage in heaven. But there's still things in here that we need to deal with. For when they rise from the dead, they are neither neither married nor given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Are like angels in heaven. What does that mean? Does that mean when you die, you finally get your wings? Like Clarence? Attaboy, Clarence. No. That's not what he's talking about. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What he's essentially saying is that they won't need procreation anymore. They won't need procreation anymore to to produce a species for God to be faithful to. Just as the angels don't need procreation anymore. But is he making this statement about how relationships, people who you cherish now, will no longer, they'll be like strangers to you? No. This is how one of my professors says it. Will there be marriage in heaven? Or intimacy? Or golf? Or ice cream? Or rock and roll? Or hip hop? The answer to the question is the same. If the Lord wills it, then we will experience it in heaven. 
If not, we will not miss them because the Lord will give us something better. There will be no grief, no sense of loss in heaven. There will be no grief, no sense of loss in heaven. And another one of my professors said this, every good thing will go on forever. Every good thing will go on forever. I want you to think about that. That without sin and without shame and without wounds, you will live forever. Heaven is this thing that we rarely think about. I mean, as Christians, you say, you know, are you born again? Do you, you trust in Jesus? Someday I'm going to go to heaven. But here's the secret. None of you really want to go. It's like choir practice for infinity. You're like, yeah, I know. It sounds really great. I can't wait to get there. I don't even really like singing, but apparently we're going to sing forever. How dare we think that? The God who created sex and baseball and chocolate and children and waterfalls. That's the guy who's planning our life with him forever and we don't really want to go. We don't really want to go. And what he's saying is you have to let the reality of life with him forever be your intimate comfort for your walk now. When you're struggling with sin, you think of heaven and that day that you will one day never sin again. When you're struggling and you're limping and you're wounded and you're discouraged, you think of heaven and think about how heaven will one day set everything right forever. We think heaven is this thing we're supposed to barely think about. Richard Baxter, one of the Puritans, used to think about heaven 30 minutes a day. And essentially the idea is this, whatever you're facing is, doesn't get the last word. Whatever you're struggling with doesn't get the last word. And these Sadducees are trying to push off the resurrection as if it's irrelevant, spiritual, religious idea. And Jesus is showing here that the resurrection matters. And I want you to remember that he's having this standoff with them. They're talking to the resurrection three days before he embodies and conquers death and becomes the resurrection. And they're telling him the resurrection isn't real. Can you imagine what Jesus is thinking as they're telling him that? Well, there's no resurrection. Really, fellas, I'll see you on Sunday. There is a resurrection. You can count on it. It is the guarantee that we live with. That in your shame and in your suffering and your woundedness and your discouragement, that say this is not the end of the story. That things are about to get so much better. Unrecognizably better. The Bible says that no eye can see or mind conceive of the things that God has for those who love him. He's saying it's going to be so good. And that's the reason that we're supposed to not walk around shamed all the time, looking at our shoes and discouraged. Not because things aren't hard now, of course they're hard now. But because he knows that for the rest of eternity, these things, these things will barely be remembered. And if they are remembered, they'll be remembered with gratitude that we got to bear that burden for God. That's what he's saying. 
He's looking at a group of people that don't believe in the resurrection, and he's saying, you, I am the resurrection. When Lazarus is dying, they get word to Jesus, and Jesus can go and save Lazarus, but he, he waits. He restrains himself on purpose. He doesn't go. So that Lazarus will die. So that Lazarus will die. And Mary and Martha are, are so concerned that Jesus didn't realize that. They say, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, listen to this, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And as if he interrupts her, says, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is standing before you. That's what he's saying to her. And three days before his death, people are standing and staring at him and saying, there's no such thing as heaven. There's no such thing as a resurrection. Does the thought of heaven bore you or does it thrill you? I get it. It's hard to connect with on a day-to-day basis. That's why we're supposed to think about it. We're supposed to bring it to our minds often. That's why we sing about it. Is to remember that the story is about to get so much better. Did you hear when we sang today? I was at an RYM conference preaching, and they sang the song, All Things New Again. I'm a Presbyterian, so nobody told me how to shout out in worship. That's not something they do. But I was standing in the back of that room, and when I heard my friends sing the songs we sang in shadows, we will sing to God's own face. I said, yes! And people turned around and like, who is that? The song we sing in shadows, we will sing to God's own face. Friends, take an easy one. Amazing grace. We sing it when it's hard. We sing it when we're discouraged. We sing it when we're overwhelmed. And we sing it to some ceiling somewhere. You're going to stare into the eyes of King Jesus and sing to him about his amazing grace. Tell me you'll be bored. Friends, the song we sing in shadows, we will sing to God's own face. And what I'm trying to tell you is, yes, yes, think about heaven 30 minutes a day. Or as often as you can. Your future hope or lack of future hope completely affects your present experience. Your future hope or lack of future hope completely affects your present experience. One of my favorite authors wrote this about Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman in 1947 went to Harvard to lecture about African American spirituals basically the slave communities of the 19th century. And the spirituals, if you'll listen to them, there's so many about heaven, and they're bright and they're full of joy. The author says it's such an aspiration was a sharp contrast to the dimly lit cabins they were used to. Howard Thurman said this, heaven was as intensely personal as the facts of their own experience. For here at last the slaves were counted in, Real as their own chains, backbreaking work, real as their own pain. During the Q&A portion, someone asked him and said, these songs might have given them a glimpse 
of a better life, but it isn't that a problem because their life didn't get much better? Isn't that a problem because their life didn't get much better? And Thurman said back, if heaven is not real, their hope is not real. They had a real living hope that was able to patiently endure their present circumstances. What enabled them to preserve and on occasion to sing is that they had a living hope as real to them as their own present experience. Slaves in the darkest, most horrible of conditions singing about heaven. Because heaven was real to them, they can endure what they were facing. And what we're told in this text is that if heaven becomes real to you, that you long for it, that you think about it, that you sing about it, it will make you be able to endure what you are going through here. Do you want to go to heaven? Or do you want to stay here? That's the question he's putting to you. Let's pray. Lord, by your spirit, minister your grace. I confess it's hard to think about heaven. We don't know what eternity means. We don't know what a million days plus infinity days means. It's overwhelming and it can sound boring and I confess that to you. But the reality is, is that you've gone to prepare a place for us. And that place is better beyond our wildest dreams. That you who give us so much joy and fun and laughter and play and meaning that we would ever think that you could bore us. Father, I ask that you administer your grace to those who are trusting in Jesus, but heaven feels far off because of the hell that they're in now. Would you make heaven so real to them? Make it enough to feed them and care for them and nurture them along the way. Remind them that it won't always be like this. Father, for those who have never put their trust in Jesus, I ask that you would move powerfully by your spirit in their heart. That they couldn't breathe. Not because of fear, but because of the excitement of knowing that they could be at a place like this with a God like you for the rest of eternity. Help them to fall in love with you again or for the first time. We thank you and we praise you that you work among us and we ask that you continue to do so now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Place like this with a God like you for the rest of eternity. Help them to fall in love with you again or for the first time. We thank you and we praise you that you work among us and we ask that you continue to do so now. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.